Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Ovatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who is a is a gentleman of leisure and also a drunkard. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and honestly, what else am I going to be right now? <laughs> really, I yeah, I mean, I like I like how um, America took the took the weirdest possible route to get to recreating, you know what. 18th and 19th century, even 20 early 20th century British uh, uh, lifestyles, just you know, gentlemen's lifestyles, just via the wrong direction, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, we uh, all have to stay is. home and we all have to drink a lot. Everyone's a man of leisure right now, and drinking a lot's the only way. Listen, as of hey, you got to get through the day, right? You got to get through the day. As an uh, as an advent of the uh, of the whole pandemic. Uh, restaurants in Ohio are now allowed to deliver alcohol with their with their orders. So yeah, hopefully they just keep that around. I haven't actually utilized that, uh, but like, why not? Before we get into the movie this week, I want to talk about our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criteria. No, no time. <laughs> Over there for just a dollar a month, you can help us keep going and get access to a bonus episode. Yeah, you we do. do. Non Criterion films over there. And uh, we have some fun over there. Um, mm-hmm. I have April lots episode of fun. was Pat and I talking about Network, Sydney Luet film, written by Patty Chayefsky. It was the first time Pat's ever seen it, and we ended up talking about it for two hours, and it is a delight and one of my favorite episodes we ever had. Um, it is by far the longest episode Pat and I have ever done without a guest. A few guest episodes get very close to that, but it is also our longest episode. Yeah, I mean, it is also a record breaker even compared to those. Yes. Which yes, is indeed. fascinating when you uh, think about it. Yeah. But we also watch uh, just a myriad of films over there. We've watched uh, Monster Squad. We've watched Ernest Goes to Camp. We've watched Ready Player One and Aliens and Critters 2. And just we have a lot yeah, of Yeah, we've watched a lot of weird shit over there. We watch, we watch some weird stuff. Uh, but it's fun. It's fun. And just a dollar a month gets you access to all those bonus episodes. Uh, I believe there's 35 of them going back right now. Uh, and uh, also get you a vote on what we're going to watch next over there. Put together a list every month, usually themed to what's going on uh, either in the main podcast or just what's been on my mind, or uh, sometimes the theme <laughs> sometimes is I want Pat to watch Network, so state. please vote for Network. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, you get to vote. Uh, item number five on every poll is Kazam, the... Disney film in which Shaquille O'Neal plays a genie. The um, best film on the list every week or every month, I should it, say. It is a great movie. Um, but you could you could theoretically choose to make us watch it all the time. And thankfully, the people voting so far have not done so. I mean, I guess when you think will. about it, like, it doesn't make sense to put your money into, like, make your money just make you make, a, make us make a podcast you wouldn't want to listen to. Yeah, that's fair. So I guess it all kind of checks out, like... 
And I'm like, ah, I'm spending my dollar a month to make sure that I yeah. never want to listen to this podcast. Right. So, again, that's all at a dollar a month. But for a little above that, $5 a month, we'd like to thank those people on air. Thank you to Christopher Otto for your $5 a month support. Yes, thank you. Uh, and uh, a little above that, we do something that I think is pretty, pretty special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently. And I get that printed up on a postcard. Write a little thank you note and send that off to you. Uh, and we also like to thank those supporters on air. So thank you to Jason Westhaver, to Adam Speakerman, and to Michael McGrath for your continued $10 and above support. Yes, thank you so much. Again, that is patreon.com slash lostincriterion if you want to support us. And we're very grateful for those who do, but we're also just grateful for you listening. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. It keeps us going in these dark, dark hours. <laughs> indeed, indeed. These extreme days. <laughs> like, I like how that can, given the modern way that English works anyway, extreme days has like a really wide swath of interpretations. Indeed. I love it. There's just a lot of skateboarders outside yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, like, there's a lot of skateboarding, a whole lot of Mountain Dew going down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. These days are truly, truly extreme. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this week we are talking about Under the Volcano, the 1984 John Huston film uh, based on the uh, novel by Malcolm Lowry from 1947, uh, the semi-autobiographical novel in that uh, most of the events that I mean, like, the semi novel is, is based like on. A kind interpretation of this yeah. book that is basically just a different name slapped on somebody else's, on his lifestyle. On his lifestyle. <laughs> Well, to be fair, the book condenses, and the movie following suit, condenses a lot of things that happened to Malcolm Lowry uh, in Mexico into a single day. And considering that Malcolm Lowry wrote the book, I don't think he died. No, uh, I understand writing the book. I understand. (laughs) But, like, you know, you. That's why I said, like, it's. It is semi autobiographical, but, like,. It it is. I I did watch the documentary, yeah, uh, and it's not that far off. Yeah. You are right. It On does the Criterion DVD, a lot. there is a accompanying documentary called uh, "Volcano: An Inquiry into the Life and Death of Malcolm Lowry." That is, uh, uh, what was it? About an hour and a half long. Yeah, I mean, it's um, basically the same length. It's almost yeah. the same length as the movie. Yeah, and it is a uh, a biographical documentary on the life and death, as the title suggests, of Malcolm Lowry, the author. Uh, Talking about writing the book, talking about his younger days, talking about his older days. Um, And the man was very drunk. And the documentary chooses to... (laughs) I want to just get this out of the way. One of my major problems with that documentary is to to illustrate Malcolm Lowry's drunkenness and... uh, really destitution and mental unbalance due to all of the factors that led to the drunkenness and destitution to begin with. Um, they choose to illustrate that by just cutting to random, like homeless people. Yeah, no, actually in public. No, well, so, okay. So I, I took it differently, but okay. I had the same problem. I was going to, I was going to have the same. That is why I implied that you should watch the documentary. That is specifically yeah. why I implied you should watch the documentary. Because I am almost as invested in, in talking about the documentary as I am about the movie itself. Because yeah. while I did interpret it slightly different, you are right. That is, a, you made a good point. I read it in the sense that 
every time they mention like they basically used contemporary New York yeah as an illustration of their discussion about how bad New York was when Lowry was there fully <laughs> right. 40 fucking years earlier <laughs> right right they're just like showing like the Listen. red light districts and stuff and it's like wait this New York in 76 to... was not great I'll be honest no <laughs> but it's also not what not when Lowry was there <laughs> yeah yeah the man was not uh, there in 19 in the 1970s yeah uh it is uh, an inquiry by the uh, an inquiry by the way is uh, written and directed by uh, Donald Britton and John Kramer and is uh uh, it won an Academy Award. I'm sorry, it was nominated for an Academy Award for do- Best Documentary Feature um, that year, and uh, it uh, won a Canadian Film Award for Best Documentary over 30 minutes. Um, and it, it it stars Richard Burton as the voice of Malcolm Lowry whenever they read his work. Mm. Uh, it's it's an interesting companion piece, certainly. Um, yeah. I don't know that I need a documentary on the author, um, of of the book. See, here's what also, I will say about that. It does. I I I disagree, and the yeah. reason I disagree is because think about how you view that movie now. I suppose, like, not to say that like the movie it doesn't make the movie better. It doesn't even really like provide you with like useful context in the sense that like nothing changes. But just knowing that, like, the person who wrote the story was basically just telling you their life story in a weird way yeah, is a fascinating thing to know. I, it's something about taking it out of the realm of pure fiction and putting it into the realm of, like, a, of semi-autobiography is just... A fascinating thing to do. That's all. I I agree, but also, <laughs> yes. Uh, I think maybe maybe my disconnect here is that I I have no emotion, and of course I don't believe you do either. But I have no emotional attachment to the novelization of Under the Volcano. Um, it is described as a masterpiece to the generation who read it when it came out. Um, 47 it's uh, apparently a boomer popular book i don't know um well that would be pre-boomer even like that's that is pre-boomer the boomers that, were three so like, yeah that's a that is a but, greatest generation popular book no uh houston in a behind the scenes documentary uh also on the dvd uh houston in introducing what he's doing uh filming this movie describes it as a masterpiece to this generation um so I would say his implication is that it caught on with the boomers. I I and can the, see that. Like there's but it's also 84 so maybe he's talking about uh, I don't know. Be, I know. don't know. When man. he says this generation he means the young Yeah, his what he means. Of, yeah, of like era, I, so. it's just it's fascinating because like we've seen this before. There's this sort of like obsession with a, with certain generations with that with books about aimlessness yeah. and and sort of an inability to like be a functional member of society yeah that is 
was very popular at a very specific time in history. Right. Um, and I, what this what this smacks of to me is books from nearly a hundred years earlier, which are those weird colonial diaries that are right. that fucking exist all over the goddamn place. Right. This feels be also because of the book was originally written in a stream of conscious style. Uh, right. And because of that, it feels like the, uh, and because of other things too, it feels yes. like those sort of colonial <laughs> of diaries things. by way of James Joyce's Ulysses, um, right. which is also a movie about a man wandering around getting very drunk, but or a, a book about a man wandering around getting very drunk. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, um, I don't believe that anyone has ever actually read all of Ulysses. So, no, I mean, I primarily a... use it to uh, fill up a pretty large space on my bookshelf at work. Right. That right. that otherwise all the other books would really just fall over. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know how long Under the Volcano is, but maybe I should I should add that to uh Well, to right, but well, if nothing else, it'll make sure your bookshelf stays balanced and uh, doesn't uh, yeah. become sort of lopsided in some way. Right. Well, I've been balancing Ulysses, uh, two copies of Ulysses. But, you know, you could actually have fun and just use a couple copies of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. and, and Oh, yeah, the full yourself. omnibus is about, about as thick as I Yes, I own multiple copies of the yeah. omnibus because I'm an idiot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, actually, weird. Well, no, the reason I own multiple copies is because one read-through of an omnibus copy fundamentally destroys the omnibus copy. I suppose that's fair. It's, it's incapable of supporting its own mass. And yeah. so the act of reading the omnibus copy destroys it. Like it, it's yeah. it's actually some sort of weird secondary art, meta art, is that it's <laughs> it's self destroying art. Yeah. Um. <laughs> the weird thing, Lowry himself, the documentary sort of suggests this. Lowry had a bad childhood and he's escaping things. And and one thing that I think Mexico functioned as in Lowry's life and functions as in the book and the movie uh, is that Mexico is sort of an ethereal, it's a fictionalized Mexico that is just a place a white man can escape in right. so many ways. Um, now, I think Houston, Houston has a, a sort of healthy respect for, for Mexico as a culture. Um, and in fact, the, the set designer and, uh, was a Mexican painter. Um, oh goodness, I can't remember his name right now. Uh, but the cinematographer is Gabriel Figueroa, who is a, uh, uh, um, who is a, uh, a Mexican cinematographer who actually shot seven films for Bunel, um, oh, interesting. and, uh, and for John Ford and, and for Houston. Um, and, uh, you know he's he's very well. The Mexican actors who are featured in this movie uh, are famous Mexican actors. Um, though the uh, the women in the brothel, the the documentary very discreetly points out, are uh, are actual prostitutes. <laughs> the way, the the behind the scenes documentary on the film. Uh, talks about uh, these women perform performing for the movie the same 
job they do in real life i believe is how the uh, how it's how it's phrased which is the most discreetly ridiculous way but right, also describing what that 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 concept yeah but also probably if they had said it outright would have just been offensive so you know, however right. they decide to word it um but yeah it's it is the story of a drunk man yeah, I mean, it is. Of a man is, whose yeah. life has completely fallen apart. Um, a man who has fallen from grace. Uh, so I guess that is that is one one place where this also becomes semi-autobiographical, is that Lowry, Lowry was never in a position to fall from grace, I don't think. Right. So. Well, uh, I mean. A, at least post-childhood. So. But, like, you know, like, I mean, I had my, you know, why, for me watching the documentary sort of complemented this story because like you kind of understand that like yes the the guy in the film is a diplomat and Lowry was yeah. never really like important but he also never seemed to actually not like I mean it, there's this whole sort of thing that keeps happening in in the documentary at least where it's like ah yes he uh always seems to have money there's that whole sort of man of leisure thing happening even though like he ends up destitute but it's sort of like because he's not taking the money that he has available to him it seems like it's it's very Lowry lowry very clearly has severe emotional issues right uh to say the least um Um, there is one interesting point in the documentary where they talk about him uh, ultimately what he wanted was not a wife but a mother Um, right and you know he's got he's got a lot of parental abandonment issues Uh, he's got a lot of things going on background I don't know how he financially functioned for most of his adult life but after he wrote the book um, he was getting a stipend from uh, his publisher to work on his next book until right. they ultimately cut him off. Um, so he did have money coming in there. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know. It's There's a stereotype of the drunken writer that goes back to uh, Poe, if not earlier. And Poe, it's that that aspect of Poe's life is overblown by a biographer who actively hated him um, but right. happened to write the first biography after he died um, uh, and Dylan Thomas I think is up there too and Dylan Thomas certainly uh, maybe uh, Dylan Thomas has other uh, his own things going on but he he definitely qualifies <laughs> as a more more honest portrayal of that personality uh a man who's dying words were 16 whiskeys and a row boys. I think that's a record. Um, right. But, uh, but yeah, because of that, because that, that, that mythology exists in the Western canon, uh, I think a lot of people are sort of encouraged into <laughs> pursuing that. Right. Uh, and certainly the, the, uh, the gonzo writers did not, did not help 
with that moving right. forward into current generations. Uh, but this idea of just consuming tons and tons of altering uh, uh, materials, I suppose, and uh, substances, and uh, and using that as a fuel to write, I think endangers a lot of people. Right, right. <laughs> a lot of people who who probably shouldn't be writing anyway. Uh, somehow Lowry produced, you know, it wasn't his first work. He had he had written some, a, a novel prior. Um, so he did want to be a writer. Right. I suppose. And somehow he provo- produced something that a lot of people regarded as a masterwork. Um, I think there is also a ground where someone might I feel this happens more often than we'd like to think of of someone's masterwork being hailed even though that masterwork is itself a cry for help and all of the people hailing it as masterwork are doing nothing except enabling a personality that Right. Yeah, no, totally. I mean that's definitely the him. case here. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. pretty obviously. Well, I mean, it's kind of an interesting like again, the documentary again does provide the context that like that everybody even knew it was essentially a cry for help. Like Right. Like the people who knew him in the documentary are basically acknowledging like yes, we were aware of the fact that this is a person who's dying. Yeah. Like right in front of our eyes and we're just not going to not going to really do anything about it. Um although it's it is fascinating because you do end up finding like he there's a bunch of references to like people like bringing him home and stuff like right. In the document it's like it does seem that like where it's one of those classic situations where people did know and did want to help but because of his emotional issues that basically seems to have become impossible like you know what i mean like we he this is one of those cases what makes this book good i guess and and by the movie by connection is the same thing that uh makes it uh is also the thing that's making his life miserable, right? Like, is his sort of inability to integrate in a me- in like fully into society and things like that, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, but by couching it as a failed diplomat, has the one the one sort of issue with that is that it creates these it it makes the book even more about a man of leisure yeah which is problematic right because that's what makes it feel like one of those colonial area era diaries right right which i i fucking hate like with a passion (laughs) that burns deep deep in my heart Um, well that's why i talk about the mexico in this movie and probably the book then as a uh in ethereal, non-real Mexico. Yeah, but to just... be fair, the the insert co- colonized country in most of those books is weirdly right. ethereal and not real because right. 
that's what colonial writers do to the exotic insert direction here. Right, right. Like, that's just Whereas, what they do. Well, this shares a lot of bones with Ulysses. Ulysses is written by an Irishman living in the town that the movie, <laughs> the city that the Right, and that's the a, that means in, something. Right? That's, like, a thing. Like, that's that's right, a meaningful right. difference, like, right? Like, down to its core. Right. Um, that, like, there's kind of, no matter how you shake it, this still feels like one of those books yeah and those books give me a tummy ache (laughs) as they should as they should i am aware that they are everywhere and and are often heralded as being important uh but they still give me a tummy ache so make of that what you will this movie didn't quite do it as much because the one thing that this movie doesn't do that this movie does visually but the book probably i hope based on just what we saw in the movie doesn't seem to do probably is muse poetically about the country so at least I don't, there's that yeah i don't know how much the book does i don't that. know obviously like the, the book m- being stream of consciousness uh it might is it might much do. more inside the main character's head. Right. But uh, the, it's quite possible that the movie, yeah. the, the book does do that a bit. Um, yeah. I, I don't no, know. But, like, I don't know anything about the book, really, other than, like, what I found out in the documentary. Right. The book, uh, as I understand, also has him having uh, visions of his wife. Right. Right. Before she actually shows up. Maybe she never actually shows up. <laughs> Well, that, theoretically, I, mean, yeah. I guess she actually dies at the end, so she would have to actually show up at some point. But well, right, but, yeah. I guess so. But like, if he's already dead, then anyway, like, how would he know? You know what I mean? Like, right. it's. I mean, yeah. I mean, my 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 issue is like, it, it it. I don't know enough about the book, obviously, to like say. Yeah. Um what happens in it by any means i just i'm just saying that like it is it it has that feeling about it um and right i that always makes me feel uncomfortable um and and should make anybody feel uncomfortable it is not exactly that thing which is good it's good that it's not exactly that thing that uh, kind of gets more to the heart of why I feel including the documentary might be a mistake in that the documentary provides good uh, good background material for the novel. Right, but not the but, right. yeah. but not the movie. And the movie is different enough from the novel that you know, another thing, the behind-the-scenes film documentary uh, bit on the DVD gets into is that uh, – this is different enough that Houston and the screenwriter in particular, I think, is is quoted as, as saying things to this regard that, that, you know, fans of the book hated the movie for good oh, reason because it was very different from, from the movie. Oh, now, that's very interesting. Now, this is, this is a movie that spent a lot of time in development. The book came out in 1947. In the late 50s, uh, Lowry himself wrote a screenplay. And attempted to get MGM to make it uh, after he was hired to uh, adapt F. Scott Fitzgerald's Tender is the Night for MGM. 
Um, studio passed on that. Uh, Lowry died in 57. Zachary Scott optioned the novel in 62. Uh, he died, and his widow owned the rights and sold it to uh, Robert and Raymond Hackham. The Hackham spent $400,000 and began hiring talent, including uh, Alan Bridges to direct and Richard Burton and Richard Chamberlain to star, scouting film locations in Spain when Lowry's widow, Marjorie, determined that she had been excluded from creative consulting, which was a stipulant in the contract, and followed a lawsuit. Uh, So rights reverted back to her. At different points, Jules Dassin, Ken Russell, Joseph Losey, Jersey Skolomowski, and Louis Buñuel all expressed interest in adapting the film, but passed. Um, uh, The film rights were bought in 82 by Wyland Schultz-Kell, who asked John Huston to direct it while on the set of Annie, which is where John Huston and... Albert Finney, the stars here, uh, met because Finney was uh, the Daddy Warbucks in Annie. Uh, in fact, I did not realize like, in, in my memory in Annie, Yul Brenner is Daddy Warbucks. I don't. That's not even like appropriate. Um, but <laughs> but he looks. He's a bald man. So right. and I haven't watched Annie since I was like twelve. Well, so, and we and yeah. you and I discussed the right. fact like pre yeah. pre recording. You're like, oh, right. if you remember in Annie, and I was like, <laughs> dude, and Annie. Yeah, I have. I can't even legitimately say yeah. I've ever seen a film adaptation right. of Annie. Yeah, um, <laughs> the guy who wrote the screenplay here, Guy Gallo, uh, had never written a screenplay before. <laughs> this is this is such what such a blatant weird privilege. movie to jump in on that. This is like, such blatant privilege. I love this aspect of the story because it is so indicative of how to get ahead in creative. <laughs> pursuits uh he was he had uh written written two papers on lowry and purchased the book but not read it while at yale as a graduate student are you Uh, saying to me right now adam he he owned it it was on his shelf that's like so i guess i'm qualified to write (laughs) an adaptation of of ulysses cool Yes. Excellent. Absolutely. Uh, his. <laughs> we mentioned Charles Bloodhorn last week as the uh, the head of golf and western, uh, who at the time of uh, of that movie's release of uh, Days of uh, Days of Heaven's release was the owner of Paramount. Uh, that's still true here because these films are made within the same like decade period. Uh, 78 versus 1984 right. here. Uh, so Charles Bloodhorn's son, this guy named Paul Bloodhorn, who was a Yale classmate of Guy Gallo. Mm-hmm. And Paul uh, was now a production executive at Paramount because his dad owned the company. God. And said, "Hey, I want to make this guy. Why don't Why don't you write it?" Jeez, and that's, that's jeez, and that's how Guy Gallo ended up in script meetings with John Huston. What the hell, <laughs> I, Adam? I quit. 
I don't I don't want to do our podcast anymore. I'm, can I quit? <laughs> you can't quit. Not yet. Are you sure? Yeah. Um Houston if I quit, you get to quit too though. Yeah. Houston liked what Gallo was was writing. Um so and and encouraged him in it. Uh they cut out a third a, I guess a fourth wheel to the whole love triangle bit. Um that was another childhood friend of the main character who is who's back in the there's three men uh in the original book. We cut that down to two by sort of combining the childhood friend and the brother character. Uh and uh Gallo made some other changes and obviously, you know, Gallo's defense on Gallo, Gallo took a couple of screenwriting classes too, you see. Um and gotcha. Gallo's defense Gallo's defense to any fans of the book interviewing him about it was that he was writing a movie and uh while uh while the book was a very good book his screenplay was a very good screenplay and i can't argue with him there certainly certainly the movie functions well yeah i mean it's 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 good i mean like it, it yeah. i i don't really have a practical complaint about the sort of way that the movie functions as a movie like it it's got problems in the things like we've talked already about the things that make me just generally uncomfortable but like as a movie it it works i mean the story it's i i would dare say it's even good um i think one i will i will give this to the documentary on Lowry. I think one thing that is true of Lowry, but not his main character, is that I have sympathy for Lowry, Lowry's plot in life. Right. I have less sympathy for a failed diplomat who can't get things together. <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. Uh, I, get, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, Lowry, Lowry's clearly gallivanting from one enabling structure to another. Like he did, he wrote, he wrote a screenplay. He adapted a screenplay uh, of a Fitzgerald work. You know, he he had actual writing work, right? Right. Um, besides his work on this novel, um, and clearly, clearly, getting that work despite his clear issues uh, implies some amount of privilege. Uh, but, right, totally, and that's kind of. I right. was getting at that a little bit when we yeah. first started, um, but like it's really it, it. Things get so complicated, right? Because you get into this sort of discussion of like privilege, but again, he clearly has pretty severe uh, issues uh, that probably make like. Also, we have to be sympathetic to the fact that those probably make it very difficult to actually work and live in a society. Right. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's complicated. Like it's not exactly black and white, but his main character in his movie is, is not that, or in his book, it seems to not be that right. Like, yeah, he's just a failed diplomat. As you talked about. Right. Which again is harder to have sympathy for. Right. 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 Exactly. Um, yeah. 
Now, I do. I certainly have sympathy for his wife, I think. Well, right. You know, in that she is desperately trying to stay with this man she loves. Right. Though she really shouldn't at this point. But also he's not, you know. There's an argument of some amount of emotional abuse, certainly. But he is not... uh, he is not bad to her so much as he is a drunkard. Right. Um, alcoholism is getting worse. Now, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's one thing about the, uh, the book that I think works well that the movie does not use at all is that it's divided into 12 chapters, and each chapter is roughly an hour of events. So, mm. um, so the movie the movie eliminates that structure, which is fine, except that aspects of the movie feel like they could take place over the course of a week. Of, of yes, yeah, as opposed yeah. to one day, and I think the the novel structure and the <laughs> better better conveys that this is a day in the life. Um, right. Yeah. Whereas the film the film does seem to have a broader time frame than that, right? Yeah, the film does definitely feel like it takes over takes course over at least a few days at the yeah. very least. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess the implication I suppose the opening scene takes place sort of the night before or the very more early morning hours. Right, of, but that doesn't yeah, right, but that doesn't day. tell you that that's that doesn't that's not <sighs> yes, but yeah. right, like that's not that much information in terms of like when right. it still could be 2 days later. Like it just All the daytime be. scenes could be daytime the next day very easily. Right. Uh including what's going on in them, except that it is all the day of the dead celebrations, but you know, the Day of the Dead celebrations could easily be a week-long festival, not a day-long festival. I guess you just need that context to know. Right, right. Um, yeah, so I just, I think, um, but at the same time, I, I'm I'm torn on it because the having that be such a weirdly nebulous time frame kind of fits thematically with the movie in the sense that, like, if it's essentially from his perspective... This is a guy who is just totally out of whack, right? Right. Doesn't have probably his grasp of day and time and place are all oh, pretty unreliable. We, we, and that's something that would the say. novel certainly explores more than than the book or the movie. But but yes, that that's an aspect that the movie is maybe trying to hint at. Right, and an easy way to do that is making time. Yeah not reliable right like making it like well i don't know what day it is or time it is or and i mean our main character even refers to the fact that he does not know what day and or time it is right right on multiple occasions which plays into that uh that 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 idea right um so i mean there there's uh you know, it's that's that's a thing, right? Like that's a way that, that that is some shorthand you can throw out there to get that across without, um, you know, having to essentially write 
dialogue and and you know what I mean? Like it it is a way to get that across. Right. Is it the best way? I don't I don't know, but like it is a way. Um so I don't I I can't really necessarily fault is what I'm saying is I can't necessarily fault the movie for making its time framing less reliable. Right. Right. Um I can't fault the movie for doing that for the narrative structure, but as I said, the book provides a meta structure, right, to to guarantee we're understanding that. And I don't know that the movie does anything to guarantee the Right, but that's assuming that, that that's something you need to know. Yeah. Right? Like I mean, if if you tell yourself, Okay, well I don't need to know it's a single day and it's not important that it's a single day then not telling us what time tells us that also this yeah. gives us some sort of indication about just how and of course out of, of course the festival is, is called the day of the dead right. that's right? also yeah. true so, right like, so like that's <laughs> the flip side of that is that yeah. like yeah. we we if you know anything about the festival right like i don't know it it's i i don't know i don't know if that it's necessarily a flaw yeah uh per se uh, it's not necessarily uh, a like advantage or anything like that, right? Um, right. Um, <laughs> Finney is very good at playing a, a weird drunk. Yeah. Uh, though when he's first when we first see him on screen, he looks he he seriously he looks like like he's made of plastic. He looks like he looks like the reanimated Bernie in Weekend at Bernie's Two. The way he moves around. Yes. Like, the zombie Bernie. <laughs> Weekend at Bernie's too. I, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm glad you can visualize that reference too. Yeah, I can. It, it's. Uh, I. I. I don't know why that is. I don't yeah. know where that comes from. Um, yeah. Well, he's meant to be someone who is already so so drunk that he's barely standing, right? Right. Uh, but at that point, still drunk enough to say he never touches mezcal, and uh, and it's mezcal. It's. When he gets to the brothel at the end, he's drinking mezcal, right? Right. Ordering. I mean, that's his. Outright. That appears to be his drink of choice. When when like things get real bad, right? Right. Or maybe he's maybe this is even the first point things have ever gotten this bad. But we know it's bad, or at least worse than we've seen in the rest of the movie because he's drinking mezcal now. Right. Also because he's being fairly easily manipulated by a pimp. Um, so there's that other things are going on, but yeah. Uh, this taking place in the early thirties and against a uh, political background that he and the rest of the white people in this movie are not engaged with at all. Even as it like that, that is interesting to me. And it is interesting to me because of how it it plays to the uh, <coughs> the colonial diaries that you right that you yeah. just like about it so much. Um, but yeah, you know these these completely detached people who somehow have, or at least believe themselves to have political authority within the region or former political authority, I suppose. Um. And obviously do not, and are proven to not, because right. of the events of what happens, even as they think they do. Like, 
they when they're on the bus and they pass the guy dead in the field and uh and they stop to help him and for at least a few minutes think that would be something that they should be allowed to do right and then the the local authorities show up and scare them off yeah and it's meant to show the corruption of these right wing uh reactionaries within Mexico too right um right right and of course it is ultimately people aligned with those forces that murder him in the end right but but also we don't see we don't see the balance of that in the in the Mexican politics either we see a bunch of regular people and a bunch of people having a festival but but Mexican politics as far as we're <laughs> this movie concerned is just the right wing groups who are exercising right and that and that is authority. in and of itself is kind of i mean not just kind of is problematic in the sense that like it it doesn't really if i don't know like if this character were that invested in his sort of new homeland he would in yeah. theory probably be aware of like the political situation, right? Right. That is not an unreasonable assumption. Yeah. And, like, it, it's very... The politics of the movie are weird, is basically what I'm saying. Like, I'm going to go back to an old staple of right. ours, right. which is weird. Uh, yeah. Because I don't know... Our, our character is definitely... Our main character here is definitely anti-fascist. Right. He comes down pretty hard about that even when he's drunk. But, like, doesn't seem to have any other political thoughts in general. Yeah, he's pretty much too drunk to have coherent thoughts. Right. We also don't know, you know, why he lost his job, right? Or who replaced him, because... Right, it seems like he might. No one might be the answer. Yeah, the like the question. answer might legitimately be, "Yep, we yeah. just let go of the position. We don't have it anymore because of this guy." Um, but yeah, no, I don't know. It, it's um, so like I, I, it is, it is. The movie is mostly doesn't seem to care about politics. Mostly. But then again, yeah. like the writer, and again that that guy. that lends itself to this dream Mexico, right? This escapist Mexico, in that right. we don't we don't have an accurate understanding of what's going on, and we're never meant to have an accurate understanding of what's going on. Um, and unfortunately, that means that we instead rely on sort of stereotypes about what's going on. Right. And and that's that is that part is problematic, right? Like that yeah. that is actually problematic. We we end up in a world where we don't where we're just sort of like supposed to assume stuff about Mexico and we're supposed to be like, well, yes, of course, this is a violent place where violent things are happening. Um, yeah. Which is not really where I want to be uh as an audience member, but uh Right. Yeah, that's what we get. Yeah. And 
to provide that context, I mean, at least a little bit, we're we're talking about a period in Mexico history where um, a leftist government since Pancho Villa in the the sixteen the the like nineteen tens nineteen twenties, a few different people through power. There's an anti-clericalism in the Mexican Constitution of the time that's sort of to combat the power of the church politically, and we specifically mean the Catholic Church here. Um, and then these these right wing guys who are popping up with Nazi support are uh, are extreme reactionary Catholics, by and large, right? Um, and uh, and yeah, now of course. Uh, <laughs> The Latin American uh, string of of left wing Catholic uh, revolutionary um, is happening concurrently here in other kind of parts of parts right. of the, Latin, the world um, and and into the 30s, 40s, <clears throat> and through through the rest of the 20th century. Um, with a lot of people, a lot of people being murdered because of that too. But um, <laughs> but. The uh, the sort of the active fight here, um, or maybe not even the active fight here. The active fight might already be over here, uh, but the Cristero War is a group of rebels against the government who are calling themselves Cristeros because they believe they are fighting for Jesus Christ Himself, um, and it is it is those political remnants um that solidify into sort of the the party that the guy's wearing the pin for on the bus the guy who steals the money right. from the dead guy uh the synarchistas is that political group the national synarchist union um that was a roman catholic extreme right uh that was uh, founded in 1937. Uh, yeah, yeah. The uh, the Cristeros War ended in 29, so like we're we're late 30s in this in this right. setting, not early 30s. So, so yeah. Uh, anyway, it's <laughs> all of that to say uh, Mexico at the time was much more complicated than <laughs> than the book makes it out to be. Writing 10 years later, and certainly right. than the movie makes it out to be being made 20, 45 years later. So, uh, yeah, it's, I, I feel that is unfortunate. Um, hmm. uh, even as I already said, Houston did make some amount of effort to get, uh, Mexican creative vo- voices, uh, into his film. Right. Right. And doing, doing that work there. But yeah, it's, it's a lovely movie, I think, shooting wise. Uh, um, but yeah, I, it's just—it's right. so far removed from what I'm interested in as a narrative. Right, I get what you're saying. And yeah. you know, we ran into that problem with things like Naked Lunch too, right? right. I'm just not—I don't care about watching someone who's done too many drugs and doesn't. Right? Know how yeah, to totally. Yeah. No, I get what you're uh, saying. And then, yeah. like, yeah. And then, actually, like, my other thing is. Like, I don't know how to describe the visual styling of this movie, but it's such a weirdly familiar, like, 
I don't know. Like the I, I I was really struggling when we were watching it. You you mentioned like it looking nice. I feel like I've seen movies that look like this before. Um, I'm trying to think of an example, but like they have that sort of sort of again. We're talking about 70s film a lot recently, and they have that sort of kind of like dreaminess to them. Uh, which this has, it, it, I don't know. It, it, a lot of it has to do with seven. I'm pretty sure it has a lot to do with seventies film stock, basically. Yeah. Uh, but like stylistically, it feels super duper of its time. Yeah. Uh, with just the added like element of also kind of considering the topic and stuff, feeling like a little bit like a forties, forties or like late forties film too. Like it has a little bit of a slight feeling of that too, to me for some reason. Um, that's just my impression. It's like not, I think it does capture the spirit of the book in that way. Yeah. uh, In that feel, it does feel in many ways like a, a piece of art, a piece of creative work, uh, that came out, in the time period it's set, not right. or the time period, yeah, yeah which I, is also unfair because it doesn't feel like not, uh, something that would have come out in thirty-seven, but maybe it does feel like something that would have come out in forty-seven, right? Yeah, that's what I was saying. Is it, it does feel like yeah. the pieces that were made about the thirties in the forties? Yeah. yeah, it does feel like it feels in that sense to me. It felt sort of like a movie out of place in time because yeah. when I was watching it, I was like. Oh, this is not. This is like I don't know. I found that a little bit jolting because I felt like I was kind of watching a movie from two different time periods at the same time, right? Which was kind of interesting. An uh, interesting feeling, right? Yeah. No, I get that. Um, and it's it's weird. Uh. So I don't really know what to what to make of that, but I do I right. I do sort of understand what you're trying to say. Uh, yeah, and it's just I I guess in a way it's the sort of story that's being told is just the politics. What what we kind of get of that? I guess the biggest difference that the one of the things that would divide it most significantly versus a film actually of the late '40s about the '30s is it doesn't deal as much with sort of the rising fascism as a movie of that time period and place would, would. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that, that kind of film, like films from that time period and that have a very specific sort of goal in mind with regards to, um, sort of their topics, right? If you're going to make a pure, that kind of piece in this, in the late forties, you usually are trying to, essentially write a road to the war type film basically <laughs> right right yeah that's fair <laughs> right the documentary on lowry also uh opens by saying you know he, he had death by misadventure the implication that he didn't actually commit suicide but he was just trying to get drunk in a new way right <laughs> uh and of course, Lowry couldn't 
predict his own death. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, our main character here hardly dies of misadventure. He dies of he dies of privilege, is what he dies of. Right. He dies of, of thinking that he's untouchable in this situation. Right, right, right. Uh, even as he's he's too drunk to, you know, contemplate that. Um. Yeah, it's. Uh, Gunther Gerzo, by the way, is the name of the painter who acted as set designer here. I just ran across that information and wanted to get it out there before I forget it again. But right, right. Um. But yeah, it's like he. Our main character, Furman, is the console. He's. I think he's just insulated from the politics of the area as much as he sort of somehow views himself as a man of the people. <laughs> like, right. Um, and insulated enough from the politics of what's going on to say to the German diplomat he's in contact with and ask him directly about, uh, about Nazi Nazis funding right wing militias right. <laughs> in Mexico. Um, you know, and in not a sort of gotcha way, but in a, oh, my brother was writing about this thing. Maybe, maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's a, I'm, I, I read it as fairly aggressive. Like he's being pretty aggressive. Yeah. In that scene. You think so? I think yeah, he's being oblivious. I, I really think he's being oblivious. He, you think so? I, I, man, like it's interesting because we can have like such radically different interpretations of it. Cause like for me, yeah. I was like, because then he goes straight after that into his spiel about like trains needing to like you needing to like what's going to happen when all hell breaks loose and stuff mm-hmm. and like how much money the train company is going to make off the fact that you have to have a first class passenger accompanying a uh, a corpse. Yeah. I so guess. I mean, no, that's fair. That's fair. I, that's, I I, to my I, mind, I kind of gloss the, over to that, but yeah, like those two combined together paints that as a connected thought process. Yeah, where one says this is going to happen because of you and what your right. people are doing. Something I understand of the book too is that there's much more of uh, of the the council. Dreaming about his glory days, um, mm. in World War One or or whatever. I think it was World War One. Um, I suppose it would have had to have been World War One <laughs> since it's right. set set before World War Two. Um, <clears throat> and that that I suppose plays to, you know, his aggression there, the reminiscence while he's sitting in the bar, uh, when his wife shows back up the story he refuses to stop telling even as he notices her this his wife who he hasn't seen in months um and and also would play to why he thinks brandishing a machete at the end will get him what he wants against three guys with guns you know uh but yeah it's they're It is beyond the realm of this movie to show us anything else politically going on in Mexico at the time. Right. But also 
what it does show us implies all local officials are corrupt. <laughs> right. And, and that's disheartening. Um, well, and that's also like one of those those classic sort of tropes, right, that like I don't yeah. really love just having in a movie just without any thought or context. It's just like, oh, yeah, yeah. they're all – everyone's corrupt. Like, well, yeah. Yeah, I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like that particular aspect of it. I don't like stories about drunk men who can't get their life together. Uh, right. And, yeah, that's... <laughs> and that's There's basically a, the gist of it. That's, that's basically the gist of this movie. So what am I going to do, right? Visually, I do find it occasionally interesting. Um, I find the, the dark comedy of his hidden liquor reserves... Right, silly, but also I know I know enough alcoholics to not laugh when something right. like that happens because it is it is true true to life. Uh, right. So, yeah, it's just it's sad in that regard, but also I never establish enough sympathy with the council. Right. To, I get what you're saying. Totally. Right. Where you really care. Yeah. 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 So that's that's me. Um <laughs> right. Obviously the book hits plenty of people and this film hit plenty of people who uh actually do find sympathy with that character. I just don't. And right. and maybe it's my own class politics that keep me from doing it. Um that doesn't make him less tragic, but he is He dies because he insists that he has authority in a situation where he not only doesn't have authority, but has no reason to be there. Right. Period. Right. It's, it's really like the the tragic consequences of uh, colonial ideologies, I suppose. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, I guess in that sense, like he becomes a victim of what his society has built right right in that sense and and one thing that i think this movie probably could have done without being too radically different or or too much of a uh uh just a textbook on on what uh on what mexican politics is actually like is to to explore that you know those those power struggles that end up killing the council only exist because of a history of colonialism right forced upon the country right you know of of mm. multiple different european nations insisting that they have authority right. within that nation uh yeah so so yeah there's that yeah, I mean, yeah, that, I, yes, yeah. I mean, I think you and I both wanted a different movie than we got, basically, right? Uh, but, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, we've been talking about Under the Volcano. I don't know that I have anything else to say about it. Uh, from 1984, directed by John Huston, um, written by a guy named Guy Gallo, who... <laughs> Apparently, doesn't know much about anything. 
who certainly has a lot of uh, a lot of other things uh, going on for him. Uh, Guy Gallo, by the way, has uh, uh, two other writing credits. Uh, <laughs> he adapted the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn for uh, American Playhouse in '86. And he uh, wrote one episode of Tales from the Dark Side. (laughs) Okay. Uh, The teleplay of the episode The Enormous Radio. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. About a radio that lets a couple overhear the conversations their neighbors are having. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And who knows what became of his life after that. But, uh... But I think the real story here is get yourself some friends at Yale, right? And, uh, and while attending you, Yale, <laughs> right? And then you will, have and then you can become work. a successful writer. Whereas the other choice is to write one good book and drink yourself to death, right? An important lesson: the dichotomy of how to be a writer, right? Great. Well, to be fair, also our main character, our our Lowry, also went to. A prestigious school, and that's right. That's right. Was kind of had his writing boosted by the fact that he was at a prestigious school. That, like, of course, he's a good writer. He's at a prestigious school, kind of thing. Also, too, absolutely right? so, true. Absolutely true. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> we've been talking about Under Volcano uh, next week. Um, next week, episode wise, but Pat and I are actually taking a little break uh, in order to consume this before next <laughs> week's it's episode. Going to kill us. Yeah, uh, we will be talking about Berlin Alexanderplatz, the fourteen-part uh, television miniseries directed by Rainer Warner Fassbender uh, from uh, uh, nineteen eighty. Um, so we do look forward to that. Uh, as I said, Pat and I won't be talking to each other for a little bit because like we need some time to consume fourteen episodes, <laughs> fourteen at least one-hour-long episodes of television. Uh, but uh, but yeah. Uh, that's it'll eat up some of our uh, some of our buffer in the recording, <laughs> but we've got plenty, so we'll be good. Like I said, we are uh, we're recording this what May first <laughs> to post right uh, July eighteenth, I believe. So <laughs> we've got the time. <laughs> so we're doing what we got to do to make this work. Yeah. Uh, we got plenty of time to to spend the entire month of May consuming Berlin Alexander Platz at our leisure and talking about it in a few weeks. Uh, but yeah, that'll be next week's episode. Uh, thank you once again for listening to Washington Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Otari Dorgan, and we'll see you next time.
You've been listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Poetari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.Bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or support us on Patreon. That's Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. We'd appreciate it.